Welcome back along to the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On today's episode, I'm going to continue working through some of my articles that many of you have asked for audio versions of with an article that I think highlights some of the differences between reformed and dispensational thought. As always, if you enjoy the content of this episode or other episodes, please consider becoming a sponsor by clicking on the Become a Sponsor link on the blog or by finding the Freed Thinker podcast on patreon.com. You can always help us out by logging into iTunes and giving us a five-star and a review as well. That's always helpful for uh, having us show up in search results. Also, it's not too late to get your tickets to the upcoming Mentionables Conference, which is being held in Greensboro, North Carolina, coming up here in just a couple of weeks. Come and see me debate uh, Benjamin Watkins of Real Atheology on Biblical Christianity and the Problem of Suffering, suffering, and hear some really great other talks uh, by some up-and-coming apologists. It all started with a small-time dream. Hold a conference in a church. With a small budget, could we afford to bring in a Christian celebrity speaker? And with an ear to hear more than just the same canned messages, do we want to? With these two questions, the mentionables were born. We found the best under-the-radar Christian apologists that we could find. Writers, podcasters, and bloggers. Their voice was small, but their message was huge. On May 18th and 19th, The Mentionables will be appearing in Greensboro. Head out to Greensboro Christian Church and hear this grassroots phenomena in action, featuring talks and a great debate. Head over to thementionables.org to get your tickets, or call Greensboro Christian Church at 336-621-5226. The Mentionables. Small-time voices, big-time noise. Well, with that, let's dive right into this episode where I respond to an article by Clinton Archer dealing with the 144,000 found in the book of Revelation. Now, you may think that this is an obscure passage and numbers in the book of Revelation. Uh, I know, but the article serves as a useful example to show some of the differences between Reformed and dispensational approaches to hermeneutics and the text of Scripture. I hope you enjoy. On May 8th, 2017, Clint Archer wrote an interesting little article on the blog Cripplegate concerning the meaning of the 144,000 sealed in Revelation 7 and 14. He was writing largely in response to Kevin DeYoung's article on the same topic published at the Gospel Coalition. One thing to give Archer compliments for is his gracious and very clearly written response to DeYoung. 
Now, while I disagree with his view, I hope that I can match his tone and his lucidity in this response. In this article, there are some aspects of de Young's original article that I will simply echo. However, I hope to add some additional insights into the text and the different hermeneutical assumptions at play between Archer's dispensationalist reading of Revelation and a more reformed reading of those such as de Young and myself. Now, without discussing the entire field of hermeneutics, that is the art and science of interpretation, there are some notable differences between how Archer would read a text compared to how DeYoung and I would read a text. Much heat is produced by these discussions, but I have found that the dispensationalist use of the term literal in their hermeneutical approach adds more confusion than clarity. While there may have been a time or a place where emphasizing the literal nature of the text was helpful, such as during the fundamentalist controversies of the late 19th and early 20th centuries when liberal theologians were busy demythologizing and spiritualizing everything, presently when discussing hermeneutics with anyone in the broadly evangelical community, the term can be unhelpful. This is for two reasons. First, it's not as though any dispensationalist thinks that every word, verse, or passage in the Bible is to be taken as strictly literal. They clearly know that when Jesus said he is a door, that he did not mean that he's a four foot by seven foot wooden panel. That would be so trivially obvious that it hardly needs clarification, but sadly, this is the kind of objection that dispensationalists are routinely accosted with. However, on the flip side, using the term literal sets up a false dichotomy such that those who disagree on the exacting literalism of some passages are then accused of holding to a quote-unquote allegorical hermeneutic or one that does not consistently read the literal meaning or plain meaning of a text. This is also so trivially and obviously false that it should not need correcting, but unfortunately it does. As a graduate of that great bastion of dispensationalism, Moody Bible Institute, and as an elder in a Reformed Presbyterian denomination, as well as pursuing a master's in biblical studies at a Reformed seminary, I have high regard for the excellent thinkers in both traditions and would like to see fair and robust engagements with how we are to read and understand the scriptures that we all cherish. To that extent, I've also noticed three points that may help clarify where our two traditions substantively diverge with respect to hermeneutics. The first difference is methodological, the second is simply a matter of degree, and the third is theological. Firstly, the major methodological difference is, uh, is that reformed hermeneutics relies on a methodology that seeks to first understand authorial intent within the redemptive historical context via the genre, that is, the census literalis, whereas the dispensationalist approaches the text with the assumption of literalism unless or until the text demands otherwise. This is not to say that dispensationalists are unconcerned with authorial intent, redemptive historical context, or genre, but rather than taking primacy, these literary features are used more like counterweights to the assumption of literalism. The text is assumed literal until it proven otherwise. Another way to think of this is the difference between trying to understand a text via a flowchart or a grid versus trying to understand a text via a template or a funnel. One starts broad and narrows down, while the other starts narrow and only out of necessity will expand. This is, as one friend of mine put it, 
the difference between literature over literalism contrasted with literalism over literature. While scholars like Ryrie, Bach, and others would argue that the literal is the literarily informed and normal or normative reading of the text, I find their comments to not add much conceptual value because they amount to the need to read the text as literal unless it makes sense to read the literature as not literal. If pushed to the brass tacks, this amounts to the exhortation to take a text as literal unless you don't. That cannot be a hermeneutical principle any more than saying that we should read a text metaphorically unless we read it as literal. Well, I'm not here attempting to fully define the dispensational methodology nor defend the reformed view. I think this simple methodological difference is helpful in understanding why these two theological traditions will arrive at radically different understandings of this particular text. Secondly, there is a difference in scope. This is rather conceptually mundane as a difference, but has major ramifications within the two traditions. By scope, I mean that both will read some texts literally or non-literally, or as a blend of both to varied degrees. I've here chosen non-literal rather than metaphorical or symbolic, since I find the usual comparison of literal versus symbolic to be wildly inadequate and a real false dichotomy. There can be texts that are strictly literal or completely allegorical and everything in between. For example, in John 10, 9, when Jesus says, I am the door, if anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Is he making a literal statement or an allegorical or symbolic one? Well, somewhat both. Is Jesus a door and are we, do, are we woolly sheep? Well, of course not. Do we walk through Jesus? No. But is Jesus the way to true and real literal salvation? Absolutely. So do we read John 10, 9 as literal or metaphor? In short, yes. When Paul says that we have been brought or bought with a price in 1 Corinthians 6, 20, using the image of a slave being redeemed out of slavery or possibly a hostage being ransomed out of captivity, are we to read that God literally financially is paying someone off? Well, in one sense, yes, and in one sense, no. It's a mixed statement that is both literal and metaphorical. Therefore, while there are exemplars of fully literal or fully allegorical and symbolic verses, in many cases, it's not so clear-cut. One of the major differences, then, between dispensationalists and Reformed thinkers is simply that of scope. How much do we cut the pie between literal and symbolic? This change in scope happens within verses, passages, even whole books of the Bible, such as Revelation, which we'll arrive at shortly. Therefore, the objections to each other as being either too literalistic or too symbolic are often simply a protestation on matters of degrees, rather than completely different interpretive systems. It is wildly inadequate for one side to point to the other and label them as inconsistent simply because they take either too many or too few passages as being literal or symbolic. At the end of the day, we all slice the pie. Finally, there's a theological assumption that drives a divergence in hermeneutical methodology. Reformed thinkers typically will understand the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, whereas dispensationalists will opt to more frequently understand the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. 
Again, this difference is largely a matter of degrees and typically is most pronounced in two areas of theology, ecclesiology, that is the study of the church, and eschatology, the study of end times. It's not as though Reformed thinkers do not understand what it means for Christ to be the true Adam without understanding the first Adam. And it's not as though dispensationalists will try to understand the Day of Atonement without understanding the atoning death of Jesus. Thus, this theological distinction is not as stark as some may think. So this is, again, often simply a matter of degrees. However, those degrees will pay off in spades when we arrive at the text to perform the task of interpretation. With those three differences in place, let me turn my attention now to the actual passage at hand, and we'll see how some of this plays out. I'll first give my brief summary of de Young's arguments, followed by a brief summary of Archer's rejoinders, followed by my own additional input to the discussion. de Young is interested in explicating his view on just who the 144,000 of the 12 tribes of Israel are in the book of Revelation. He's going to argue for a historic reformed amillennial view that the 144,000 is a representation of the church, that is, all of God's elect. He gives six reasons that I will list here in summary form. If you'd like his more robust statements on them, please visit his article. Number one, Satan steals all his followers in Revelation, or sorry, Satan seals all his followers in Revelation 13. The contrast to God sealing all his people is obvious. Number two, the image of sealing likely comes from Ezekiel 9 and contrasts out idolaters from non-idolaters. It does not mark out a special class of God's people. Number three, the 144,000 are called, quote, servants of God. In Revelation, this term always refers to all of God's redeemed, i.e. the church, and not just ethnic Israel. This is seen in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, 220, 19.2, 19.5, and 22, verse 3. Number four, when the 144,000 are shown again in Revelation 14, they are called redeemed from the earth and purchased from among men. This is generic language for all redeemed, not just from among Israel. Subpoint, DeYoung gives another reason, but listed as subpoint of number four. The 144,000 are called those, quote, who have not defiled themselves among women, end quote. Should we think that this is a special class of celibate Jews or that this is an image of moral purity? Number five, DeYoung appeals to the normal view of Hebraic uses of numbers to convey symbolic meaning more than exacting counts. He notes, as many have, that 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 1,000, representing the 12 tribes, the 12 apostles, and 1,000 as the usual number to represent a great multitude. Number six, the list of the tribes is unusual in its construction. We notice that Levi is listed despite it almost never being listed in the Old Testament because it did not have a land inheritance. We also see that Joseph's son Manasseh is listed in place of Dan. DeYoung argues this is because Dan is historically connected to idolatry in Judges 18 and 1 Kings 12 and is thus replaced by Manasseh because the tribes are supposed to represent the fidelity to God by the church. We'll now turn to Archer's five reasons for taking a literal view of the 144,000 as being 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of ethnic Israel. Number one, 
John says what he means and means what he says. He lists 12 tribes by name because he meant those 12 tribes. Archer wonders if John wanted to convey a literal 144,000 ethnic Jews, how else could he have said it? Number two, the 144,000 are sealed. For Archer, this does mean that they are a subset from all believers. He then looks to the uncountable multitude that appears in verse 9 as standing in contrast to the definite 144,000. Number three, Revelation 14 calls these men the redeemed, quote, first fruits, and Archer claims that this, quote, always implies a smaller sampling of a larger group, not the whole group, end quote, and thus this means the 144,000 is a subset of the redeemed. Sub, sub point uh, of point three, Archer gives another reason, but lists it as sub point of number three. Because they have not defiled themselves with women, Archer understands this to mean that they must all be men and thus cannot represent the whole church, which surely includes women. Number four, Archer balks at the idea of God mimicking Satan with respect to sealing his own people. In addition, if believers have already been sealed, then they would not need to be further sealed on the forehead later during the end times. Number five, numbers should only be taken as symbolic if... Number one, taking them literally would lead to absurdity. Number two, taking the number symbolically adds clarity. Number three, if the number is a common established figure of speech. Okay, Archer then gives a final thought on why we should care so much about this reference to 144,000 in a book that most people have a hard time understanding in the first place. Largely, he agrees that our view of these verses will likely have little to no impact on how we live our Christian life. His concern is that it opens the door to manipulating or disregarding other numbers in scriptures. Six days of creation, 12 disciples, Paul asking three times for his thorn to be removed, how many times we should warn a divisive man during church discipline, and so forth. He concedes that numbers do have symbolic meaning at times, but that when it is not clear, we should, quote, have higher respect for our hermeneutical rules than for our preconceived eschatology. End quote. Well, what can we make of these two views? I would like to say that I almost completely agree with DeYoung and find Archer's arguments lacking and, as we'll see, precisely because we employ the three divergent aspects in our hermeneutical methods. First, I'll briefly respond to Archer's arguments for his view, and then move into my own additional arguments that lend more weight to the reformed amillennial view advocated for previously by DeYoung. My responses to Archer will be numbered the same as his to make comparison easy. I also grant that Archer, and DeYoung for that matter, were giving very brief responses, and thus we should not imagine that their views are as simple as stated in just a couple sentences each. In addition, my responses will be equally brief, simply to stand in contrast rather than to fully defend my view. Neither side should assume these are open and shut or complete proofs. So my response to Archer. Number one, Archer says that John means what he means and that if John wanted to say that it was 144,000 ethnic Jews, how else would he have said it? The problem here is not that Archer is being in inconsistent with his dispensational framework. Rather, it is that he must assume John's intent is to be literal from the outset and thus assumes his own view prior to interpretation. 
It is like when you ask someone their view of a passage and they say that they just agree with the Bible or take the biblical view. Well, that's simply not productive when the question is precisely, what is the biblical view? What is the Bible saying? So such an answer is not only not informative, but it does not take into account if their view of the Bible on, the, on that topic is accurate or adequate in the first place. I could also say that John means what he means, and what he means is a representation of the whole church. His question regarding how else John would say it if he meant it literally is also not constructive. The same question could be said to, uh, to literalize any symbolic passage. While they clearly do not want to be a hyper-wooden literalists, how else would he answer the question, if John wanted Jesus to be a woolly lamb, how else would he have said it? Well, clearly, if John wanted Jesus to be a literal lamb, then that's exactly how he would say it. The problem is that it's just not what he meant to say on anyone's account, and thus the question is not as helpful as it may prima facie be to the dispensationalist readers. Number two, Archer argues that these are the sealed believers, as opposed to all believers which appear in the text as the great multitude in verse 9. I'm going to leave this untouched for now because this will be more aptly addressed in my own response to number four, and then one of my further arguments that I add for my own position. Number three, Archer says that first fruits always means a subset, and thus this is a subset of the people of God, namely the believing Jews during the time of the Great Tribulation. Is this correct? Well, sort of. First fruits does always refer to a subgroup brought out of a larger group. However, does that mean that the first fruits are the first fruits of the people of God? The text tells us something different than that. We see in 14.4, quote, These have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, end quote. Notice that they are not the first fruits of the people of God. They are the first fruits from among mankind. Well, is Archer correct and this mean the first of the Christians among all Christians? This would be problematic even on a dispensationalistic futurist reading, which understands Revelation as a description of future events. Would a later group of ethnic Jews be, quote, first fruits in that sense? Or would the first generation of the church be the first fruits of the church? This is how first fruits is used in 1 Corinthians 16:15, where the family of Stephanus was the first fruits of Paul's labor in Achaia. However, in James 1:18, we also see that it is all Christians who God has brought forth in Christ who are the first fruits of all of God's creatures. This means that the term first fruits is always a subset, but in the New Testament, we see subsets of the church and the church as a whole itself being called first fruits. At the very most, we can say that Archer's objection simply leads to a draw and is therefore inconclusive. As for Archer's view that they must be men because they have been defiled themselves, because they have not defiled themselves among women, I think that de Young's understanding as representing purity is far more plausible. In addition, should we stack up examples where men are used as examples for both genders in the Bible? If we drew a hard and fast rule that where men are performing, or in this case abstaining from an action, meant that it just must only apply to men, 
we would land in some serious theological or ethical hot water in manifold biblical passages. This is plausible in some cases, but not in others. So Archer would need to defend and not merely assume it in this case. Number four, Archer recoils at the idea of God mimicking Satan and sealing his own people. I have two thoughts on this. Firstly, God often polemicizes false gods in the Bible, so this would be nothing new. Secondly, and more importantly, this is simply irrelevant because God is the one to offer the first sealing of this group in Revelation 7, and it's not until Revelation 10 that we see Satan sealing his people. So it is in fact Satan impersonating God, something we know that Satan is keen to do, and not vice versa. More salient to Archer's objection, though, is his argument concerning chronology. He argues that if believers have already been sealed, then surely the sealing that happened in Revelation 7 happens toward the culmination of time around the time of the Great Tribulation. Exact time will vary depending on which dispensationalist eschatological scheme he holds to, and is a different and unique sealing which happens literally on the forehead. What we need to note here is the assumption of the dispensationalistic futurist reading of Revelation being imported onto the text. This is to be somewhat expected because we all read Revelation with a view in mind, but the futurist view must then be defended before it can be assumed. On an amillennial, partial preterist, idealist, or historicist view of Revelation, the sealing likely refers to the sealing of believers by the Holy Spirit throughout history. We can see this in 2 Corinthians 1.22, Ephesians 1.13, and Ephesians 4.30. And as such, Archer's chronological objection only follows if we already grant his assumption of his dispensationalistic futurist reading, which I'm simply not convinced we should do. Number five, Archer finally gives three standards for when we should read a number as being less than literal. Notice here the assumption of literalism mentioned in my first distinctive between Reformed and Dispensational thinkers. While this is not the case for all Dispensationalists, for Archer, numbers must be literal unless proven not to be. This may be rather innocuous and lead to a correct interpretation more often than not, simply because numbers are more frequent in historic and didactic passages anyways. Yet the assumption is still present. It must fit the template rather than first asking what kind of genre is being used, what is the authorial intent, what is the theme development, what is the literary context, etc. Here, I would also submit that given de Young's arguments, my rejoinders of Archer, and my further arguments to follow, Archer's second standard does not apply. That is, taking the 12,000 from among 12 tribes as less than literal does add clarity to our understanding of the passage and of the book of Revelation as a whole and of its place within the broader canonical corpus. In addition, there is a case to be made that both 12 and 1,000 are numbers comically, commonly used uh, symbolically, to symbolically represent biblical concepts. I'll argue one such example to follow. Now, I'll move into my further arguments before finally responding to Archer's closing remarks. Number one, sealing in 2 Corinthians 1.22, Ephesians 1.13, and Ephesians 4.30. For this point, I would simply like to point out that in every case of the people of God being sealed, it is a reference to the sealing of the Spirit on the believer. When we come to the Revelation texts, we would need good reason 
to assume that this, this sealing is something other than the seal given to all believers. While some may question understanding a Johannine theme in Pauline terms, as evangelicals, we do hold to the analogy of faith that we should interpret the less clear by the clearer passages of the Bible. Should we think that John has a completely different notion of sealing mentioned in none of his other books and without any clarification given to just what makes it different? Given the ap 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 apocalyptic nature of John's revelation, a genre distinction from even John's other writings, it is possible for him to intend some other concept of sealing. However, without any concrete context or information given to distinguish it from the rest of the New Testament teaching on this, I see no good case to be made in that direction. Number two, doulos to theu, that is, servants of God. In chapter 7, verse 3, we read, quote, quote, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. End quote. Those who are being sealed are called doulos to theu, the servants of God. In the New Testament, doulos tu theu is a term used exclusively for believers. This phrase has various meanings and may refer to our service rendered to God, a servant of God, or our positions as slaves manumitted by God for a price, or as slaves of Christ for the sake of the gospel. But it is always God's people who are the doulos tu theu. While it may denote a specific individual like Moses or Paul, this term is never used to describe a special subset within the people of God, such as the ones on the earth versus the ones in heaven. Number three, purchased from among men. The language of being purchased is also a term which is in the New Testament when applied to believers is always used in reference to what Christ did for his whole church on the cross. The term hagarazzo has a commercial was a commercial term that was used for the purchase of something, notably the purchase of a slave, either for from a slave trader or from out of slavery. Christ's death accomplished our purchase from slavery to sin, and we can see this in Romans 6, 1 and following, 1 Corinthians 6, 20, and 1 Corinthians 7, 23. This applies to all the elect, that is, the entire church. In the New Testament, this purchasing is not something done and applied to a subset from among the church, but is how Christ bought a whole people for himself from out of bondage. Number four, numbers, tribes, and apostles. While I think DeYoung did an adequate and succinct job at delineating the use of numbers in Revelation, one more piece of information should be added. This concept of 12 tribes and 12 disciples being features of the same set is not unique to the 144,000. In Revelation 21, when John sees the vision of the heavenly city, Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, he is shown two features specifically, 12 gates with the 12 tribes inscribed on them, this is in 21.12, and 12 foundation stones, each with a name of one of the 12 apostles, this is 21 verse 14. I wonder here if the replacement of Dan with Manasseh mentioned by DeYoung may even be parallel to the replacement of Judas with Matthias, the expulsion of the unrighteous for the righteous. John himself shows that the conceptual blending of the tribes and the apostles is within his thought during the composition of the book already.
Number five, hear and see motif. One of the more compelling arguments in my estimation is the pervasive motif of hear and see found in John's apocalypse. Now, an apocalypse is the pulling back of the curtain to reveal what was mysterious or hidden before, usually by means of a heavenly vision. It is to give substance to what was foreshadowed or hinted at, not necessarily in the river of time predictive sense, but in the fuller disclosure sense. Apocalyptic literature will often reflect on historical events, survey current events, or look forward to future events, and pull back the curtain to reveal the activities of heaven during those times. This means that the motif of hearing a shadow and then seeing the substance or the reality is already built for this genre of literature, and John makes full use of it. Repeatedly through the book, we are told that John hears X, but when he looks, he sees Y. He hears the concept, then he sees the substance. In fact, that is John's commission in chapter 1, verse 19. He is to hear and then write what he sees. We can give numerous examples, but these will suffice. In 1.10, John hears a voice like a trumpet, and in 1.12-13, he turns and sees that it is one like the Son of Man walking amongst the lampstands. In 5.5, John hears of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, who has overcome, and when he looks, he sees the lamb that looks as though it has been slain. In 5.9-10, John hears the proclamation that the lamb has made men from every tribe to be a kingdom and a priesthood to God. Then, in verse 11, he looks at the innumerable myriad of elders serving and worshiping before the throne. In 9.16, he hears the number of the armies from the east. Then in 9.17, he sees their appearance. John even describes this motif during the summary in 22.8, where he writes that his role was to hear and see. Needless to say, this motif of hearing and then seeing the substance is a major one throughout the book. This is relevant to our question because we notice that in Revelation 7, 4 through 8, John only hears the number of the 12 tribes. He does not see them assemble. However, in 7, 9, when he looks, he sees the great multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and tongues standing before the throne of God to worship the Lamb, pure and clothed in white, likely a symbol of purity parallel to the purity of not being defiled by women in the list of the same group mentioned later in chapter 14. So from this motif of hear and see, we can reasonably link the two groups of sh- as shadow and substance. John heard the number and then saw the reality, that the church is without exacting measure. Number six, underlying theological frameworks. Finally, since we're never theologically neutral, and since Archer can come to the text with his own presupposition of dispensationalist theology, then it should be important to note that none of us read Revelation in a vacuum. Revelation is, by all accounts, more opaque in many ways than the letters of Paul. Considering that Archer would likely agree with the hermeneutical principle that we should interpret less clear passages in light of clearer ones as stated above, What should we make of this passage that we may potentially teach that there are two peoples of God, the church and the saved out of Israel? 
Without making a full defense of the Reformed view of the unification of the Jewish remnant with believing Gentiles as the church, the true Israel, which you can see in Romans 11:17, Galatians 6:16, Ephesians 2:11 to 22, 1 Peter 2:4 through 10 and so forth, let it merely suffice to say that it is exegetically proper to understand Revelation 7 and 14 from the lens of a broader ecclesiastical theology well informed by other passages. This means that it is consistent to read these passages from within each of our theological frameworks. I would submit that Archer himself is doing the same, but simply that the reform view simply has a better biblical and historical theological support for their doing the same. Okay. Archer and I agree on two things with respect to this discussion. First is that while one's view of this specific number will likely have little traction on how we live the Christian life here and now, it does have relevance to our understanding of our broader hermeneutical frameworks. Second is that we should take those hermeneutical structures seriously and attempt to construct and even apply them in a consistent and biblical manner to attempt to rightly divide the word of truth. However, I would like to call Archer to the, uh, to the mat for consistency with his own statement. If you'll remember, he closed his article with the statement that, quote, we need to have higher respect for our hermeneutical rules than we have for our preconceived eschatology, end quote. I think Archer should take his own advice because it appears to me that he is allowing his dispensational eschatology and ecclesiology with respect to the nation of Israel and the church to drive his hermeneutic rather than his hermeneutic driving his eschatology. If at the very least, understanding the differences between reformed and the dispensational hermeneutic will help us hear and see and hopefully better understand how the other tradition arrives at their interpretation in a manner consistent with their hermeneutic, then we've done a job well done. We simply should not think that if they do not slice their pie like us, that it necessarily means that they are being inconsistent. We may disagree on which hermeneutic is best and which leads to the most consistent and biblical theology, but we can also be charitable and rightly understand each other as the other would articulate their own view. I hope that I have done that for Archer and other dispensationalists like him. Well, thanks again for joining me. As always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to contact me at freedthinkerpodcast at gmail.com. Visit the blog at freedthinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or, and probably best, come on by the Freed Thinker Podcast group page on Facebook. Well, join us next time as we help freed thinkers to think freely and free thinkers to be freed indeed. Good night and God bless.